0: Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee, and today I'm joined by Richard Cohen. Hi, everybody. And uh, Richard's bald because he shaved his head for charity.
1: This is true. I raised... Uh, Over $1,100
0: for children's
1: uh, cancer research and treatment. Nice. And now I get to rub my fuzzy head.
0: Yeah. It's a good... um, So my son used to get his head shaved when he was a kid um, a few times. It's a good feeling that just growing back, just like a weekend kind of thing. Yep. Um, So anyway, Richard and I are going to talk about uh, his article this time. And this, it's called Zen and the Art of Early Childhood Education. Um, We will have a link posted when this podcast episode comes out. Um, But Richard, do you want to tell them where to find it or any background information about this before we jump in? Sure.
1: Well, uh, so this was written a few years ago uh, as an introduction to a book that is yet to come out (laughs) that has been sitting in, we'll just call it Litigation heck. <laughs> uh but we can cuss on this show, right? Oh yes. Litigation Hell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um for some years now that I can't really talk about. Um <laughs> I've been able to sort of um uh frame it as an article unto itself. And so uh so that's why we're able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um Zen and the Art of Early Childhood Education, which is the name of the article, is also the name of my social media presence on Facebook, um Instagram and Twitter so you can search for that long term or you could just search for art of early childhood or art of EC uh, and you find it on those platforms and every day I try to put out something uh, educational uh, interesting research inspirational humorous something for my beloved early childhood educators to um, nourish them Mm -hmm. and so I've been doing that since 2013 And And so this article, um, as you said, sorry, you'll put out the link to it, but also uh, it's pinned to the top of the Facebook page. And you could also go to richardcohen.com and scroll down to various uh, videos and podcasts and articles, including many nerd
0: ones, (laughs) and uh, you'll find the article down there as well. I just was gonna say that um, one of the things that I like because I've uh, I think I've followed your Facebook as long as it's been up there. Um, ooh, I didn't know you were on Twitter though, so I had to write that down to track you down on Twitter. It's all the same thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> but one of the things that I that I really appreciate is that. Um, you have sort of a balanced focus and some of what you're posting is about children, but some of it is about taking care of ourselves and thinking about ourselves as adults working with children, um, which I don't see on a lot of other spaces uh, for early yeah. childhood on social media. So well, the, the concept f- was, oh, no, go it, ahead. I just was going to gonna build jump on in, what but, you're saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's in that first part of the article that um listeners you will be saddened and judgmental to know that heather printed it out and she can't see the first paragraph (laughs) because of the way she printed it um that is a sorry nerd it really
0: is i feel shame
1: you should um (laughs) uh but anyway what it says in that article that she can't see is that um the whole my whole idea behind the zen and art of early childhood education which is what Heather was just alluding to a moment ago, is that um, I started noticing that some of uh, the world's and history's kind of greatest wisdom that we all look towards uh, to guide our lives um, was really, really relevant in my thinking to early childhood education. And the more I started thinking about early childhood education as uh, being far more than about colors, letters, numbers, and shapes, But about introducing little human beings to life, then all of those sayings and proverbs and adages about life, I started realizing they applied to my classroom Mm -hmm. um, and to early educators taking care of themselves in order to take care of young children. And so that was kind of the impetus for the whole
0: thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And even though I can't see that paragraph, I know yes. that's what's in there, so I was going to ask you to <laughs> talk about that. So you did, okay. you did just exactly what I was going to make you do anyway. So yay, whatever that's worth. Um, so, so the article is divided into uh, several sections. So we're just going to kind of jump in uh, to the ne- to the ne- to each one and see um, where it goes. So the the next section then is on reflection, um, and and ref- reflection. Reflective practitioners, reflective teachers, whatever you want to use has was one of the things that was really eye opening for me when I moved into positions of where I was quote unquote training teachers when I was a child care center director. It was surprising to me to find that that's not something that comes natural for everybody that i that that willingness to ability to experience with um, reflecting on what you think about children, what you're doing with children, and, and making connections, or even new information you hear about working with children um, and that piece of it. Um, so so I guess just can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on, on reflection and...
1: Sure. Well, you know, we early childhood professionals are a subset um, of uh, all humanity. <laughs> Yes.
0: <laughs> and
1: um, I don't think we're all uh, born into a human culture that encourages reflection, yeah. that encourages us to think about what we're doing. Certainly not in this sort of modern world uh, where we just want to use the microwave or drive through and uh, get our thing, get our product, get, get it done. Uh, we don't have time to reflect. That's not really a cultural value. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, we find ourselves as a group of professionals um, not um, prepared, generally speaking, for that. Like you say, you, you thought it was, you were used to doing it, but you were surprised that most of the early childhood professionals around you weren't. And I just think that's a function of being human. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to, you know, one of the things I love about early childhood educators is uh, the best ones anyway is we in- intentionally, and that word will come up soon in the next section, but we intentionally sort of stand outside of the stream uh, of the culture um, and plant our feet and look around um, and say, wait, let's, let's really be thoughtful about what we're doing. Um, are we doing what's best serving other people's young children? And so as far as reflection goes, um, there's two kinds. Uh, I would say there's professional reflection. Mm -hmm. So that's our ability to reflect on what we're doing while we're doing it or reflect afterwards. Like, why did that activity that I put so much effort into bringing to the children totally bomb? What was it? Mm -hmm. Let me figure that one out so that I can write it down so it doesn't happen again next time. Um, That's the professional reflection. or That's Mm -hmm. one aspect of it. I'm reflecting on data, I'm reflecting on my observations of children and the data that's derived from it so that I can plan my curriculum or plan my, my scaffolding and my support of those children. But then there's also personal reflection, like who am I as a human being? Um, uh, where did I get the preferences and the biases that I have? And how are they impacting the ways I'm interacting with young children? hmm Um, you know, for example, did you see that video last year? Uh, it was so simple, but fascinating to me about the caregivers who, so they had babies in a room, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, some of the babies they dressed in pink dresses and some of the babies they dressed in, in, in blue shirts and pants. Um, and the genders were not related to the colors they were wearing and the babies were surrounded by toys. Did you see this one? No. Okay. How how did I miss it? 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's really so simple and obvious, but Mm -hmm. so beautiful. We're talking about ultimately what we're talking about here. Spoiler alert is implicit bias. (laughs) Uh So then they would ask caregivers to go into the room and play with the babies. And of course, what they found out in their research is that the caregivers tended to hand the dolls to the babies in pink and tended to hand the trucks to the babies in blue. Um, and they didn't even know they were doing it. Uh-huh. It was not a conscious, intentional choice. Um, so that professional reflection is one of those things that helps us notice in this example that many of us um, treat boys and girls differently, not even realizing the short and long-term impacts of that.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems to me, as I'm listening to, to you talk about those two types of reflection, um, that the professional reflection might be more comfortable than the personal reflection. <laughs> Maybe that's Absolutely. like stating the obvious, but, um, so I'm I'm thinking, but even the professional can be really difficult. Like um, your example of, um, why did that activity tank so often when an activity tanks, um, uh we were talk so sidebar, we were talking last night in my living room about not you and me, Richard, but the people in my living room, about needing to And have- just for the audience,
1: that's because I've never once been invited to <laughs> Heather's living room. I just want to point that out.
0: <laughs> You're always invited. Um okay. okay, so anyway, uh about the need for an air quote sound for the podcast. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we do it so often. And um my husband then said, Well, we need that the Victor Borga sound from when he used to make mm. punctuation and I was like no there's right. like three people in the audience who are going to know what that means so I tell <laughs> the story for you three people who know what that is referring to but anyway when an activity tanks what I see most most often is is the adults thinking about well how can I change the behavior of the children so that this doesn't tank again um right. and it's 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 very difficult to switch that around to let's look at the whole picture what what could what could have been feeding whatever it was that, that affected that activity. And that's difficult right. enough, but then you throw in asking someone to reflect on whether they have implicit biases that are affecting the way they interact with children. And, uh, and I, and you're asking a lot. I'm not saying that you're asking too much or that it's unfair to ask, but I think that's really a big ask.
1: Well, so In terms of professional reflection, Mm -hmm. two thoughts come to mind. Mm -hmm. One, this is the place where we, and you hear this phrase thrown around, this is the place where we bridge theory to practice. Mm -hmm. Right? So we learned all this stuff in school or in the 10 million books that the early childhood nerd has read. (laughs) But the ability to take that and apply it to real children in some random moment is really hard for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. It's a real challenge. And so professional reflection is the act of taking that abstract idea called zone of proximal development or fill in the blank and then really saying, okay, what's, how do I connect that to what's actually happening with this child who's, um, struggling with, um, holding a crayon. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's professional reflection is what helps us bridge theory to practice. Um, it's also, uh, I forgot my second thought now. Um, I'll just look at you. It's gone. You
0: remember. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad it's not just (laughs) me that
1: that happens too. No, it's not. It's those of us old enough to, to know who Victor (laughs) Borg is. It tends to happen to.
0: Yeah. Although my 27 year old son knows who he is, but that's because his grandpa used to watch it when he was watching. Oh yeah. That's Um, so, so um, Mm -hmm. I think what you're, what you were just saying about the professional reflection piece then shows how important it is to have side by side in the moment coaching with teachers and class, and, and, and caregivers, because the, going to uh, sending somebody to a Saturday workshop, and I'm a fan of Saturday workshops. That's not what I'm saying here, but um, about theory is not the same as having someone in the, in the space with you who has had some practice themselves making those connections. Because I think one of the best ways to start, making those connections is to, to have someone else who says, see, you're already doing it. When you did this, that was Piaget. Or when you did this, that was whoever. Um, and then they, it's, like, it's like constructive, constructivist learning, right? We, we know we, we can start to label what we're already doing and then we can build on it because we're more aware than we were before someone brought that to our attention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some of the most exciting work that I've done um, and I've just done so many different things across my career, I know. Um, which has just been fun. Like, um, just that I had no idea that was going to be my journey, but it was, but, um, in terms of my consulting work, when I went like, uh, I'll have a city, like a, like a, a city that will hire me, um, uh, to come for a week. And so then I'll spend the week coaching. Um, and I have a specific method of coaching that we can I can mention. Um, and then it, then the week culminates in a day long workshop or conference where we can reflect on all the stuff that we had been talking about during coaching. And then you put them in small groups and they can talk about all that stuff. And that's where the magic happens Mm -hmm. when you can have both the coaching and then kind of the debrief to me anyway, the debrief and the formal reflection on, um, the real life experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, so my coaching, uh, uh, is called metacognitive coaching. Uh, So one of my big things is mindfulness Mm -hmm. and separating ourselves uh, from our thoughts and feelings and being able to stand outside and notice them from a place of compassion. And so um, when I coach people, um, I don't say, why did you just do that? Or do you notice (laughs) when you did that, that was Piaget? Uh Um, And I, I have to explain this to people beforehand. Otherwise they think it's just weird and they get thrown off by it. Mine is always, so think, just take a moment and think about what you were thinking when you made that choice. What was the thought going through your mind? I really want you to start um, noticing your thinking. Mm -hmm. And then you can later reflect on where did that thinking come from in your childhood, in your, in how you were raised. Mm -hmm. But right now I need you to just notice the thinking that's driving your behaviors. Um, That's what I find most effective to help teachers transform their behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. and Well, I think that's definitely a, um, I mean, I think anytime we ask someone a question like that about their practice, there's going to be a level of defensive reaction, but I think that is such a, um, let's just, let's just meet right here where we are and and start with the very basics that maybe it's less, less threatening for people. Yeah, to hear that question in the moment. You are not
1: your thoughts, Mm -hmm. but you have them. And what's going to be most helpful to you is for you to compassionately notice that uh, they're driving you. Uh And think about, now that you've learned about Piaget or whatever, um, why you might want to start thinking differently and then Mm -hmm. acting differently out of those new thoughts.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, uh, unless you remember what you were going to say about Personal reflection about implicit bias. We're going to move on to the next section. Okay, well, that's cool. We can always come back if it pops back into your brain. So the the next section is on intentionality, and this is actually one of my favorite words (laughs) um, to use and to think about. Um, But I I think it's sort of getting really close to buzzword status in the field. Sure, Um, both of these,
1: reflection and intentionality.
0: Right, right, to where we sort of use it a lot, but but don't think about what we mean and we don't stop to define terms so that two people who are using it, know, they're talking about the same thing. But um, so this is, this is part of the section that I heard in your um, Facebook live with um, active childhood UK. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was, was this section and you started by talking about the quote that you use here from Rhonda Byrne intention leads to manifestation. We create our lives with every thought, every minute of every day. so I think a lot of times when people talk about being an intentional teacher, they think about the planning and what we're putting on paper and what we're putting on the shelves and what we plan to do um, and being intentional about that. But I think this is a much deeper, much more personal sort of idea of intention. So tell, tell me why, you ch- what, why Rhonda Byrne's right.
1: Well, that's a loaded question right there. <laughs> I wouldn't say Rhonda Byrne is right. Okay. In the context of her book, The Secret, mm-hmm. um, her her idea about a, a, a very um, boiled down version of her idea about intentionality was that, you know, you make your vision board and you set your intention and you pin on your vision board that picture of a red Porsche. And if you just keep focusing on that intention, you can manifest a red Porsche into your life. Um, and because the early childhood nerd podcast is what it is. I can say, I think that's bullshit. Ah, yeah. Uh, I made a vision board once. (laughs) How'd that go for you?
0: Um, well, it was a dating vision board, so it went okay, but not because of the vision board. I mean, it was, it's all okay. Maybe Rhonda would say it was because of the vision board. (laughs) It was more just fun to sit with my friends and make a vision board than it was anything else. Right. Anyway, so, sorry. I but to, the point of the vision board is well taken. I why well-table. I might start giggling. Okay.
1: Well, which is the inverse. That mm-hmm. if you don't have a clear intention, it's much more statistically um, unlikely that you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. So to at least start with, this is my goal, right? And so you have some teachers who say, and they think, this is my goal. I need to make sure that children learn all 26 letters all eight colors and however many shapes. By the time they're done with me, and then in June I can exhale and say, "Okay, that was my intention, and I met it." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are others who are who would who might say, um, "My intention is to be present with the children, to follow their lead at all times, um, to refine my curriculum based on their interest and what's meaningful to them." And if you if you're clear on that intention, the on either of those, let's say, um, the way you teach is very, very different, mm-hmm. but either way, it starts with that intention. But I'll tell you the one thing I learned the, my greatest lesson in intentionality was in my last role as a center director
0: mm-hmm.
1: and God bless the, the, um, teachers in the newborn infant room. Um, Oh my God, that job is so, intense from the moment they get to work to the moment they leave. And then of course, after, because they love those kids. (laughs) It's just a whole life Uh of intensity when you're with newborns. So I was constantly running into the newborn room to give them support because one to four is nice. Two to eight um, is, it's just so intense. Uh So I spent a lot of time with newborns um, and that was a joy. Yeah. But the thing that really hit me around intentionality was um, trying to get newborns to sleep. Um, When it was clear, they were sending you messages that they really needed to sleep, but they just, they were doing everything but that. They couldn't Mm -hmm. do that yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the teachers would say to me, wow, Richard, you're magical. You come in and you can get these babies to sleep that none of us can get to fall asleep
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so as I would stand there over that crib right that horrible crib that met all the regulations that had (laughs) nothing in it but a baby Mm -hmm. right no nothing on their backs um and I would every little movement of mine and thought of mine I was trying to be present and intentional um now I'm putting my hand on your tubby on your tummy now I'm rubbing it in a clockwise circle. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. I need to do that more slowly. <laughs> I need to slow down the circle. Okay. Now I'm singing you this song. Um, uh, what was the song I used to sing? Uh, inchworm.
0: Inchworm. Oh, yeah.
1: And I would sing it over and over. And that was mm-hmm. very intentional. The repetitiveness. Uh-huh. The, just like, I am going to bore you to sleep. Um <laughs> God damn it. Um, (laughs) And now I'm going, I'm still rubbing and I'm saying, now I'm going to slow it down. Now I'm going to just have my hand on your tummy because I see your eyes are fluttering. And now I'm going to raise it the tiniest bit so you can feel the heat of my hand, but I'm not moving any other part of my body. And I'm going to keep singing. And now I'm going to pull my hand away a little bit. And I've never been more intentional Mm. then in that moment i never really realized intent what intentionality meant fully uh until it was directed at a newborn and what it took from me very intentionally um in that example to get them to fall asleep
0: mm-hmm.
1: or help them fall asleep
0: yeah and i think that's a good example i mean it's it's a beautiful story but it's also a good example of um being in the moment um, and making your decisions based on the thing that's in front of you and not the seven other babies behind you because you knew that there were other adults in the room for those, for those babies. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it's not when your work is trying to stay in the child, but, um, but it's so easy to be looking forward to what you need to get to next or what happens after, um, and and that can get in the in the way of your intentionality, I think. Trying to constantly think of what comes next or what do I need to do next, and what is this keeping me from? Uh, and that's, that's well. Now we don't even need to talk thing.
1: about the next section or whatever the, that one is, which is on staying present. Oh, the next one is the foolishness, present moment.
0: Actually, well, but, it's
1: coming up though. Okay, but you <laughs> just said it so perfectly. I don't have more to add.
0: Well, you will by then. I bet we'll get okay. there. We'll get there. You know me too well. (laughs) Um, So then the next section, that's a good segue just to correct you and say it's on (laughs) foolishness. (laughs) Again, for
1: you listeners, uh, Heather and I can see each other visually, and she's taking so much joy in correcting me. I haven't seen her smile this big in a long
0: time. I just want to point that out. Um, well, it's rare. It's a rare thing. I'm trying to be in the moment. I'm trying to really enjoy it. Um, okay. So the next section you're talking about foolishness. Um, and, uh, and I, I think the first sentence of this section is a good starting point. And you say, while the outcomes of early education can frequently be very serious business. We must never forget that there's always room for fun. So you're not talking necessarily about things that are foolish, stupid. You're talking about allowing ourselves to be, to look foolish sometimes. In yeah, a, that's a good point. I really think of that, of that yeah.
1: definition of foolishness. Yeah. Well, that, um, again,
0: that's why I'm here to tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to make me look like a to fool. Make,
0: to make you look foolish. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, make that. your case. Um, another definition I love the of court foolishness.
1: Uh-huh. I'd rather be the court jester than the king. Um, if you look back in history, the court jester often had more power than the king because the court jester knew how to influence the king. Mm. King may have been the decision maker, but the court jester um, really was quite political in his, I'd like to say his or her, but I I don't know how many female court jesters there were at the time. (laughs) Um, In their role, they had great influence. Um, Humor is, you know, I don't need to state the obvious, especially now as we sit in the middle of this pandemic, Mm -hmm. is so therapeutic, is so healing, It's so important to the human experience, laughter and joy and playfulness. Um, And so, um, you know, again, if my job is to introduce new beings into this world and say, hey, this is what it means to be a human being, um, why would I not want them to celebrate that part of the human experience? Yeah, um, and that's really hard for a lot of people in the world, and that subset of people of we talked about this the other day. Nice people that get hired in our field mm-hmm. with no early childhood or child development background, but the director's desperate for a warm body, and so they hire them because they're nice. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those lovely nice people um, are really backed up about looking foolish and silly. Mm-hmm. Um, or here's another aspect of it, mm-hmm. um, or another illustration of it. Um, so I taught community college. i I'm currently teaching community college and I taught it once before in St. When I lived in St. Louis, Missouri, um, I taught at St. Louis community college in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, before, during, and after the shooting of Michael Brown and the riot that ensued. I was right there in Ferguson. Um, and m- primarily my students at that time were grown women for the most part, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, who because of state funding had to get their associate's degree mm-hmm. and they filled my class. Mm-hmm. These women, and 99.9% were women, so I can say that. Mm-hmm. These women had absolutely no problem singing, dancing, being silly, playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. They were older. They were, they were in a, stage of, a developmental stage of their life we looking foolish, was kind of um, not such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, they were past it. Um, but if I wanted to have conversations with them about anti-bias education and soci- sociological phenomenon, that was mm-hmm. really difficult for them. Now, I find myself in Hartford, Connecticut, a similar population in terms of uh, ethnicity and poverty, but now my students are 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. They are right there, eager to talk about um, sociological phenomenon, but I cannot get them up singing <laughs> and dancing for the and playing for the life uh-huh. of me, because they're so developmentally into looking good. Yeah, and that foolishness thing is just so hard for them at that stage, at that it adolescent stage of their life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But so key to um, to being an effective early childhood educator. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, I think, um, I mean, I I don't doubt that for a minute, that checks out for me, my experience and knowledge of being in one demographic <laughs> and knowing people in the other. Um, but I, I, I think it's easier to do those, Maybe maybe this is just me, it's easier to do those kinds of things in front of children than it is in front of other adults so absolutely so maybe they're you know they're seeing you do it they're not comfortable doing it in the classroom but th- with you but they're gonna jump in with some three-year-olds and try some of the things they see you doing is my hope that's true that's where i hope it goes um that's true. what uh so i'm gonna maybe this is gonna put you on the spot but probably not what would you say um Let's so let's pretend you're you're a teacher being foolish in a classroom with children and um, an administrator walks in and challenges that because it's not um, it doesn't look like learning. And what would your what would your response be? Uh,
1: Well, so first of all, you're asking me for a reaction to Mm -hmm. my administrator.
0: Right. Right? right. And
1: one of the other things that's key to being an effective early childhood professional, you and I, I think, have talked about this before, though it's not in this particular article, is proactivity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, when I was, I'm just remembering when I was interviewing for that child director job a couple of years back, they did something similar. Here's a scenario, a teacher's doing this, how do you react? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, actually, um, in my center, if I were the director. Um, that would never have happened to begin with Um, because we long since would have been having professional development, ongoing coaching, conversations about um, why you're not going to put the child in their cubby when they misbehave. Right. Uh, And so I don't need to answer your question about how I would react Mm -hmm. because I would have done been doing so many things proactively. Um, And so, you know, I often say, When I, back in the eighties, when I took all of my child development classes and went to school and got my degrees and blah, 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 no one ever told me that I was going to find myself in a profession where quite often I knew more about early education and child development than my supervisor. Mm -hmm. And that part of my job as a child advocate, um, was to educate them. It's not in the job description. Um, as a white male, um, I'm so powered and privileged that it doesn't scare me to speak up to a supervisor, right? And so I totally own the privilege around that. Mm -hmm. But that's how I've spent my life, is handing articles to directors, um, explaining myself before they even ask. And so um, because of that, I would never find myself in that moment where they would have asked, why are you doing that silly thing? I would have been putting out parent newsletters explaining the value of play and silliness. I would have been CCing my director on those newsletters. All of those things would have happened so that uh, I wouldn't ever fear that she would be surprised when she walked in my classroom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if that answers your question. It does. That's, no, that's
0: okay. so, so I was, as you were talking, I just kept thinking, you know, there's somebody who's listening right now going, well, that won't work because my administrator wouldn't go for it. So um, I just wanted to give you a chance to process that a little bit for people uh, to hear. I think. Well, the other I mean, thing I, I think- would
1: add is that a lot of, um, so, yeah. So a lot of early childhood professionals um, make the mistake of, so let's see, let's go back to intentionality for a, a moment.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, you, you actually heard me say this in Fostering Grit or some earlier podcast, mm-hmm. which is the importance of teachers being able to give the rationale for why they're doing whatever they're doing and have it be research-based. And you have a lot of lovely, nice, early childhood professionals who will say, well, I did it because um, when my kids were young, they loved it, um, and so that's why I did it. Um, or I know kids love bubbles, and so um, that's why we did it. But if you see yourself as, the, as a, the kind of professional that a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist sees themselves, they know that before they give a recommendation, Uh, they have to have done the research and they have to be able to cite the research. Um, What the current studies show is blah, blah, blah. And so um, one of, one of the things that I do in working with early childhood educators is to remind them to, you can't use yourself as your reference. Um, Anytime you do anything, you have to be, you have to read, maybe not as much as that early childhood nerd, but you have to read and then you have to be able to cite it to other people and say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, because this really interesting study said blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. That also helps when you're talking with parents, especially (laughs) when you're someone like me who doesn't have children of their own, and they don't really want to, not sure if they can trust you because you're not a parent. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, you're right, I'm not a parent, but um, let me tell you a little bit about Erickson's research and what I learned, and together, um, we can partner to help your child. Mm -hmm. You know your child, I know Erickson,
0: Um, let's figure this one out together. Yeah. Um, That's uh, sort of an approach I take with people a lot who are, when we're having conversations about working with parents, specifically working with families, it's like they, they know their child, you know, childcare, you know, groups, you know, theory, whatever. And let's bring it together somehow in a conversation, maybe not in the moment when the question is asked and we're feeling you know, defensive or challenged or whatever, but find a time to to do that. I just so I, I ask that because I know that there are those folks who listen who think, um, well, I don't have any power. I can't do those things. My administrator wouldn't go for it. But we have more power than we know. We just need to think That's about right. or or than we realize. We just need to think about ways to exercise it you know, the proactive approach that you described and all those different things you would have done beforehand to sort of manage people's expectations Uh um, sets the stage. But also that's sort of exerting our power um, in a way that maybe someone hadn't thought about. Uh So thanks. (laughs)
1: I'll give you an example of um, what you just said. We have more power than we know, Mm -hmm. which is so often true. But I'll give you an extreme example. Mm -hmm. I was saying how I love my consulting work where I can spend a week coaching and then culminate in a big workshop. So I did that at an Air Force base many years ago. Um, I won't say which Air Force base, but um, it was at a child development center on the Air Force base, which tended to be staffed by the wives of uh, the active military uh, males. Um and these were women who were again were just amazing and intelligent and lovely and all the things you want, but that most of them did not have formal early childhood or child development backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so as I spent my time with these women uh and listening to them and coaching them, they would say, Oh no, that's again and now remember this is military, right? Yeah. So they're in a context of rules and um following the uh-huh. rules is the number one thing. And, mm-hmm. Hierarchies, not about I'm an empowered person. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who follows the rules. So I kept hearing that in my coaching. Oh, no, that's against the rules. No, 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 you can't do that. Uh, let children climb up the slide. Um, paint with water on a wall outside. That's, it would get the wall wet. That's, gotta, that's against the rules. <laughs> it
0: would get so the wall wet. So I started wet. making a Sorry. list of all these
1: rules. <laughs> okay. And then every day, right? But. <laughs> But mm-hmm. it's really human. It's their it's really reality, difficult. yes. It's uh-huh. an extreme version, yeah. but I think that's true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started listing all these things that people were saying were rules. And at the end of each day, I'd meet with the director as we led up to this conference. And so this conference started with me on big chart paper, listing all the rules uh, that I had heard over that week. And then I had asked the director ahead of time, can you speak to these rules And let us know, maybe you can come up here with your marker and circle, which ones are actually rules and which ones are the ones that people just think are rules, Mm -hmm. but are just, they've sort of somehow decided that in their minds. And if there were 30 rules up there on that list, maybe three or four of them were actual rules and the rest of them were just disempowered people who weren't in the habit of thinking for themselves and stepping out. And they had decided in their minds that they were rules, even though they weren't. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us do that in our lives, personally and professionally. And, and listen, I'll say this without getting too political, maybe. Um, our current president has been a great example of um, showing the difference between sort of rules and laws and norms and all these things that we thought were immutable.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
1: see these, this current president. Um. just ignoring them. Oh, it turns out that wasn't a law. That right. was just a norm. Yeah. You don't actually have to do that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and that's been an incredible lesson for me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think we'll just move on from there.
1: <laughs> well, there are some people who that's exactly what they love about our president. I know. That he, yes. Right. And then there yeah. are some people, that uh, it infuriates, Mm -hmm. but either way, I think we can all agree that that's one of his hallmarks and that we've all learned something about um, what are actually laws and rules and what were just norms and traditions. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Which, which I think really does translate into or connect to the example that you were giving of the, you know, the air force program where they had all the rules, because I think there are people in childcare programs um, who delight in those rules. And um, then there are those who um, delight in proving that they're not really rules. <laughs> and, I think you and I are in the latter group. I do too. I'm pretty sure. I do too. And it's definitely gotten me into trouble. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: <laughs> and probably you too. We should do an episode on getting in trouble.
0: Yeah. Okay. At some point. That would be great i have some great stories of how right i've always been (laughs) and that's the show now go get your nerd on
1: this has been an explorations early learning upstairs studio production
0: oh